If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning, I'll be reading from Mark 12. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to him, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and, get, and to God the things that are God. And they were utterly amazed at him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. It is good to see you here today. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. I want to offer a semblance of a parable before we jump into the text today. I, I read this true story. I read in the uh, news this week, there was a woman, and uh, she was kind of reflecting on her experience in the article. Uh, she had recently broken up with her partner and uh, lost her job. And because of those two things happening about the same time, she also had to move out of her apartment and kind of figure out what life looked like for her. And, uh, and so she was in the process of trying to find another job, and she, she was having very little success. And it was, it was one of those moments where she was leaving from uh, an office in a high level of a, a tower, and she was coming down uh, the elevator and, and out the door, and she just felt defeated. She felt utterly defeated. Another door had been kind of closed in her face. It felt like that's all that she was experiencing. And as she walks out the front of the skyscraper, she looks across the street and she sees a Whole Foods and she thinks to herself, um, maybe I should just get something to eat. Maybe lunch would help me feel better. And so she goes across the street and as she's crossing the street, on the other side of the street, on the corner, is a person that's holding a sign and they look like they're homeless. And she's just, it's not her day. She's not in the mood. And as she crosses the street, the person asks for a little help and she, she kind of snaps at. And then she goes into the grocery store, and she's finding something for herself to eat. And she thinks to herself, I do have a little bit of money, and that person didn't deserve what I said. And so she buys herself lunch. She finds her way back to the corner, and uh, she finds the man to apologize. And she says, look, I'm sorry for what I said. I'm having a hard time. This has been a rough month. Here, take this. And she offers him the dollars and coins that were in her pocket. And the homeless person looks her in the eye, and with two hands, one underneath her palm, underneath her hand, and the other kind of folds the money over into her palm and says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. And I wondered to myself as I heard that story, who was who Jesus? Where was Jesus in that story? And I think 
I think the longer you think about that place from those particular people, both sides finding a way to give to the other, you start to see Jesus all over the place. If you have ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful for this morning. Uh, the fog as I woke up was a gentle reminder of the fact that you made everything. The weather, the universe, the cosmos, everything belongs to you, and we're grateful for this day that you've made. And we're grateful that we can come together in this place and worship. We're grateful uh, to lift our hearts to you like a, burn, a burnt offering, an incense that you smell. We're grateful for the Eucharist where we're joined one another at the table with strangers and friends. We meet you there in a mystery. And Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. We're in Mark uh, 12, beginning in verse 13, if you want to look on with your own Bible. Uh, I don't know if I said this. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. I'm glad that you're here, too. I mean, Mark wants to let you know. He's pretty blunt about it, but this is clearly a trap. And even if Mark hadn't told us, you could just tell because of the characters involved. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians are not a team. They're not partners. But they find themselves as allies of convenience. Now, the Pharisees get a bad rap in the Gospels. They, they come into conflict and they butt up against Jesus over and over and over. But the reality in the first century is that the neighbors are, are the kind of folks that are pretty good neighbors. And they're doing their best to right the wrongs of the past by being the change they want to see in the world. And they take the law seriously and they believe the holiness of the priests should be reflected by everyone. And yeah, they bump up against Jesus and his Essene sensibilities at times. And here they are, they're coming uh, to Jesus, and, and they're going to ask a question, and the Herodians are there with them. And to be honest, we don't know much about the Herodians, because they only show up about two times in Scripture. Both times, by the way, they're colluding to trap Jesus. We can assume from their names that Herodians are somehow with Herod, who is the ruling power of the people under Rome. And their livelihood in some way depends on the fragile peace at the time. Now, if you were to travel to Israel today, or maybe a month ago, one of the trinkets that you can pick up there is a, a denarius, like the one we encounter in the story today. And like in Egypt in the early 20th century, where you could buy a looted mummy in a back alley, some street dealer might sell you an authentic denarii, and it would have the face of Caesar Augustus on one side and the words in Latin, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus on the back. First of all, that's a graven image. That's a picture of a person. Second, it calls Caesar a god. And so if you wanted to mint a coin that would really just set a Jew off, you can hardly design one better than what Rome built for its empire. And if you were in Jerusalem, 
and you went ahead and bought the coin, it might be authentic or it might be a fraud. But I think what we hear in this story, or at least the backdrop of this story, the tent of the sky that we see is the story of Israel. Israel has been subject at this point in the first century to one sort of rule or another since the Syrians took northern Israel into captivity. And from there it went the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Hasmoneans, and then the Romans. And the Israelites in general tend to be unruly subjects, threatening or outright rebelling with pretty fair frequency. And one of these rebellions, called the Maccabean Revolt, was about 200 years before Jesus. And one of the slogans that they used during this revolt was, pay back the Gentiles what they deserve and obey the commandments of the law. And so Jesus in this situation is asked a question about taxes. And his contemporaries, they paid a lot of taxes. They paid taxes to Rome. They paid the temple tax. If they lived in Galilee, they paid taxes to Herod too. And nearly all of those taxes had no direct benefit to the common person at all. It just went to fill the coffers of the rich far away. And it's not possible. It's possible for us to find ourselves there in some sense. At least we understand the frustration that the common people of Galilee and Israel dealt with. Objecting to some of the ways that the government is using your hard-earned money. And if you found yourself objecting to this moment, not necessarily in November, but definitely in April, you would find yourself with interesting company. Like Quaker pacifists in the 1960s, who figured out that about 41% of their taxes were going to a war that they could not with reasonable conscience support. So they decided to pay 59% of their taxes, and then they went to jail. Or a farmer trying to avoid the questionable nature of the way the U.S. spent the money tried to pay in corn, figuring that corn could not be used in evil. The IRS politely declined, and the farmer had to pay in cash. But the real question in this story is not about taxes. And before we find ourselves too aligned with the lives of those who lived in the first century in Jesus' time, let's realize that we live in a democracy, and it's not analogous at all. Empires, first century, and democracy of now, is, they're not the same. Either way, this is clearly a, a trap, and like Satan, these two groups have come back for a more opportune time to test them, because the Pharisees and the Herodians, they show up in Mark chapter 3 earlier to ask him other questions. And it really is, he, Jesus can't win. If he says, pay the tax, then he alienates the crowds because nobody wants to pay the tax. They just have no choice. The Herodians, by the way, have said yes to paying the tax. And the Pharisees went along paying it, although they didn't like it. If Jesus refuses and says, no, don't pay the tax, then they go to Pilate and they have him arrested for insulting a revolt. There's no way out of this question for a normal person. And it's a trap because it's a burning issue at the time. And there's all sorts of issues that seem to force decisions and allegiances. But Jesus seems to find another way. And there's this moment of humor in the text, and you're going to miss it if you're not paying attention. So read in your Bible, in, in, in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, that Jesus makes his interrogators come up with a coin. 
Jesus doesn't have one, and he doesn't touch it, but he makes them reveal their coins. And Jesus finds this non-seditious way to say, pay the Gentiles back. Send this filthy stuff back where it came from. Now, we're in a series called Deliver Us. And for the past season, we've been looking at this unholy trinity where we expose the strategy of the evil one, which is the lies of the devil, which is the battlefront of our minds, lead to the disordered desires uh, which are in the flesh, in our bodies, which are normalized in a sinful society, and we're going to call the sinful society the world. And for the past few weeks, we've been thinking about the relationship for the reordered society that lives by the Spirit. It's a group of people that are, have reordered their desires, or at least being formed in that direction. But one of the difficult questions that we have to ask is, how do you live in a society where it seems like there is no way to not be involved in some form of sin? A while back, it was conflict diamonds. You couldn't buy an engagement ring for someone because you had no idea if, if, if that diamond was bought with blood or not. And then there was trade-free chocolate. You couldn't buy a Hershey bar, knowing if there was slavery involved in your enjoyment, or cruelty-free makeup. I'm not going to talk about that one. And this is what the Simpsons mocked when Lisa was enamored by the environmental activist boy who comes to town. Of course, you know, Lisa Simpson, this cartoon is, she's a vegan, and, and he impresses her because he says, I don't eat anything that casts a shadow. When money itself is suspect, when paying taxes is an ethical dilemma, how do, you, how do you even engage in the world around you when it feels like any move you make makes you complicit in sin? And we're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, this season when we head into Advent because instead of finding ourselves in Luke or Matthew or the other Gospels this year for Christmas, we're going to find ourselves in Revelation. And one of the books, uh, the, the, the Apocalypse of John, it uses this fantastic image to show the, show the struggle of good versus evil, of the power of the sovereignty of God. But one of the, the images we're going to counter is this beast, or rather there's, there's these two beasts. One looks like the power of empire, and the other is the seductive influence of commerce. But we realize that any involvement at all is complicity. And it's impossible to miss that these Pharisees and Herodians, are they're holding a coin with the image, quote-unquote, of the Son of God, missing the fact that the Son of God in actuality is standing right in front of them. And we can't escape the question that this text leaves us asking. What does it mean to give to God what is God's? But I think it's a mistake to think that this text carves out part of the universe that is not God's. Like that there's this Caesar realm over here and then there's this God realm over there. That's like the sort of baptism that avoids dipping the right arm in the water because that arm is the arm that holds the sword. This text rubs us the wrong because there's part of us that wonders how it's impossible that the empire that we are a part of the empire that is so wealthy and so powerful and in so many ways good, it must be God's will. I mean, God must be for us. How else could we explain our history if God isn't for us? Except we look at Israel's history. 
And we realize that God tends to use empires to punish nations. And their power is not righteousness, it's pragmatic. And at the end of the day, Habakkuk would remind us, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, that those empires do not escape divine judgment either. Esau Macaulay wrote a book recently. It's a, it's a memoir of sorts, kind of charting his family's ancestral relationship with America. And he talks about what his parents and his grandparents and his great-grandparents endured as African-Americans, as sharecroppers, and living through the civil rights movement, and even today. And he said a line that is stuck in my head. It is rent-free in my head for two months. He said, America doesn't have to be innocent for God to be good. And that's the coarse rub of the gospel that I want us to feel for a minute. I want it to make us a little bit uncomfortable. America doesn't have to be innocent for God to be good. And here's the reason why it rubs for me. How could something that I love so dearly, how could something that I believe in, and how could something that I'm committed to also be so cruel? And there's the rub. That when those two things start to fuse together, the kingdom of God is going to step in and pry them apart. But before we go too further, I want to tell you a story that happened this morning. Um, Foy Pinson was, was praying over me this morning. You may not know this. Before first service, um, elders or other folk uh, other leaders will kind of gather into that, that quilting room, and every week they'll, they'll pray for me. They'll lay hands on me, and they'll, they'll pray for you too. They'll pray for this Sunday service. It's, 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 it's my favorite part of the morning. It's my favorite part of Sunday. And, and, and Foy was praying for me this morning before church, and, and he said, even though you know us completely, you love us still. Even though God knows us completely, God loves us still. And I thought there's something there. I think sometimes we get caught up defending and fighting for causes that aren't ours to defend or fight. But when that happens, we find ourselves with unnatural allies, people we wouldn't expect to be partnered with. The Pharisees and the Herodians both see themselves as kind of the hero of this story because they're defending the things they think are the most important to God. And they find themselves, ironically, plotting to kill the God standing before them as a consequence. And so I think there's two ways to read this text. One that says there's these two separate spheres of the universe, what belongs to the government and what belongs to God, and the laws that function in one don't have traction in the other. These are two parts of the world, like the religious part and the social and political part. I think the way, this way of reading the text is an inadequate idea. It's not wrong, it's just not fully mature. Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a 20th century theologian and ethicist, challenged the concept of kingdom formation through political power and a vague sense of love. He argues that the way of the cross runs against this concept. The crucifixion stands in judgment against Christians using political power in Christ's name. It was political power that killed Jesus. 
Niebuhr argues, and I quote, the contradictions of human existence which, pre which prevent power from ever being good enough to belong to the kingdom and which equally prevent pure love from being powerful enough to establish itself in the world must finally be overcome, but they can only be overcome by divine actions. And for us living in our world that we live in, they can only be overcome through the cross. The cross is the only power in the universe that is self-sacrificial enough to bring those worlds together. We are seduced into the lies of the devil and we find ourselves always tempted to believe that once a given, lector, a given leader is elected or unjust law is repealed or a social wrong is rectified, a moment of justice is achieved that the kingdom of God will have arrived in our fullness. That's not where it is. The other way to read this text is to hear Mark's subtle reference to the Maccabees. Give the Gentiles back everything they deserve or pay the pagans in their own coin. Because the kingdom of God is about the one true God being enthroned as king. And every other despot or crackpot sitting on thrones in real life or just in their head, whether they style themselves as sons of God or high priests or whatever, are going to fall short. Because this, this third way is where Jesus leaves the Pharisees and the Herodians and us imagining worlds that we cannot yet see. A world in which everything belongs to God, and yet finds itself in various degrees of rebellion. That God loves us, even though God knows us. Because sometimes we find ourselves like those counterfeit denarii sold in an alley in Jerusalem. And this is the point of the church. The point of the church is to speak the truth of God's love back on God's creation. And in this moment, Jesus sees straight into their souls and straight into ours. And the tacit question for them and for us is, whose image is stamped on us? Or to rephrase Jeremiah the prophet, whose name is written upon our hearts? Give to God what belongs to to God. Let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Would you stand for our benediction, please? Um, I almost never say this because it's rarely true, but the sermon was shorter today. And so if you have uh, children and his kids, please don't barge in, wait for them to finish what they're doing because uh, we're just a little bit early. I want to challenge you this week to spend a little bit of time, carve out a little bit of time of your week to think about what belongs to God. What in your world bears the image of God? And how does that transform how you live? Because the woman that's being rejected she bears the image of God. And she deserves someone to say it's going to be okay. And the person standing on the corner, he bears the image of God. And he deserves to have his needs met. 
So may you be filled with God's presence and wisdom this week. May you see God's spirit move in every corner of the universe and go in peace.